Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is my colleague, Dr. Semra Atour. Semra is an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy and holds a PhD in epidemiology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Master of Public Health from Boston University. Her research focuses on socio-ecological resilience. She's published about 40 academic papers, books, and book chapters on topics related to public health. In this interview, we talk about her journey from discovering the field of public health as an undergraduate to her pursuit of technical skills to support her passion for public health. And then we talk about some examples of her interdisciplinary research, blending together fields such as epidemiology, engineering, and urban planning to improve community health and health equity. It was a lot of fun for me to get into depth with Semra about her background, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. And if you do enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Semra Atour. Welcome to the podcast, Semra. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for having me. So starting with kind of your background story, you went to Brown University and you studied human biology. Why did you choose to go to Brown and, and what, was, uh, what was the interest in human biology? Sure. So it really stemmed from my dad was a doctor. So okay. he was a doctor of internal medicine and cardiology. And I grew up in a fairly small town at the time, Plattsburgh, New York, which is in upstate New York, very close to Canada, across the lake from Burlington, Vermont. Oh, lovely. So now it's probably not such a small town, but back then it had a pretty rural feel. And my dad, I think, had the luxury of practicing much as we think of nostalgically as a rural family physician. He cared for many patients for their whole life. He did some home visits, which probably no one does anymore. And he sort of grew from, he showed me the one room Victorian house that used to be the hospital when he moved there, which is now a major teaching facility that's part of the UVM Medical Center. So that kind of colored, you know, I think my experience in two ways. I was always interested in caring for people, probably largely influenced by my dad, who really reached out to everybody in the community. And the other piece was, I think, growing up in a place that was really beautiful, close to the lake, close to the Adirondack Mountains. But there was also a lot of um, economic, I think, a lot of poverty and a lot of times when people were out of work, people were struggling. What had once been a rich agricultural kind of economic heritage were now farms struggling to hold on and generations not wanting the farm anymore and trying to figure out where else to, how else to make a living. So I knew I wanted to do something to do with healthcare, and I thought I would be a doctor because that was all I knew. Yeah. And I admired my dad and I admired people who did medicine and I didn't know there were other avenues other than nursing. That was the other obvious one. And I sort of thought I would prefer to go to medical school. But then when I went to Brown, which I chose for two reasons, one was to get to the big city, which (laughs) even though I loved growing up in Plattsburgh, it benefited me in so many ways. And I had such wonderful neighbors there. I was ready for, you know, at age 17, 18 to say, whoa, I'm ready for the big time. And Providence, Rhode Island at the time sounded like a, a really interesting place to be. And the other thing was Brown really now, I would use the term fosters interdisciplinarity. 
at the time from my 18 year old self, I didn't know that word. I didn't know what it meant, but it sort of created this attraction for students who wanted to think broadly about, let's say a biology degree, but maybe you also loved art or you also loved music and you wanted to find a way to explore those during your college career without someone telling you, oh, you know, you're a biology major. What are you doing studying painting? <laughs> and it really sort of fostered that idea that interdisciplinarity, creating your own major, being able to think about the ways in which different sets of knowledge complement each other was something that was promoted there. And that was very clear from both what the students were doing and how the faculty interacted with the students when I visited. Were you required to do some sort of interdisciplinary You weren't project, really or? required, but there were also, the majors were set up so that many of them were slots that were left open for you to fill however you wanted. So it was a little bit more prescriptive with biology because many people thought they wanted to go to med school and you still had to take chemistry and all the usual things. But the rest of your schedule, maybe what we would call discovery or general education here, was almost left as a blank slate to you, the student, to say, and the other thing that I really want to study is some people did music, some people did philosophy, many people did philosophy, many people did something that was really a balance between a more quantitative or hard science and something humanities oriented. Neat. And it was very self-selected. I think that was the other thing that you know students said, we create our own majors. And if you don't like doing that, don't come here because the onus is going to be on you. No one's really going to tell you how you should fill your schedule up. But to me, that kind of creativity really appealed. And looking back on it now, although it took me a while to be able to reflect back, I think my love of interdisciplinary work and be able to think kind of about crossing boundaries and bridging silos really came from that place where we were encouraged to do that at a pretty early age. So I guess I somewhat fell into it, but somewhat gravitated toward the, the creativity that you could bring to your own undergraduate experience. Neat. Yeah. Um, so you went there as a biology major or human mm -hmm. biology major. Yep. Thinking maybe medicine. Yes. Where did, so you didn't ultimately do medicine. I didn't medicine, ultimately so do medicine. was the decision, were you still thinking, when did you, I would say, when did your thinking change? I think I started to change at the beginning of my senior year. Okay. When I finally interacted with professors who showed me that there were other possible careers in health that could be very exciting that weren't on the traditional medical school track. So I met medical anthropologists, for example. I met people doing women's studies and epidemiology and medicine that were part of the School of Public Health, although at the time, I don't think they had a public health undergraduate major that really kind of grew up in the past couple of years. Um, so, you know, it was just showing me that there are other ways to think about health, other ways to think about contributing to the health of communities. And that was the big change that had to do with not just the individual clinical approach, but how you facilitate health through other social systems. And that was probably the biggest change that maybe happened kind of late because I was already a senior at the time. But those kinds of things made me really curious and made me say, okay, at least I want to take a year in between to kind of think about whether it's going to be medical school or what else is out there. And that's when I began to explore, oh, there's a degree in public health. There are possibly other avenues mm -hmm. to pursue. Okay. And so I took, I think I took two gap years in between where I worked for a research lab at Brown. So I stayed in the Providence area and was working in a, in a sleep research lab actually with some wonderful folks who did research there. And that allowed me to both explore research, but also that connection back to 
you can do many other things if you're interested in health. You could be a researcher, you could be a public health practitioner, you could be involved without necessarily being a doctor. So that was where that kind of happened. Okay. So you were, uh, you stayed on at Brown, uh, you started to do this research. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, you moved up to the Boston area and started working yeah. as a research assistant at Tufts? Yes, and that was really concurrent with my MPH. So once I okay. took the couple of years off remaining in the Providence area, working with uh, Mary Karskadden, who's a wonderful sleep researcher there, and had some time to just explore research and what a public health approach might look like, even though I still wasn't quite sure, but it was increasingly feeling like the right thing for me. And then I started to think about graduate school and where could I go for a public health MPH degree. So sleep I think of as more medicine as opposed to public health. How did you... How did that tie together? It tied together because uh, my mentor at the time, who's still doing research at Brown, Mary Karskadden, was really using a public health epidemiology approach. She had multiple appointments in the School of Medicine, but she was looking at how, for example, sleep deprivation affects people's ability to function in school, or how can we foster what now we call sleep hygiene taking better care of yourself and educating people on how to do that because it contributes to community level health. And now we know all kinds of immunologic relationships and other things that lack of sleep can be very detrimental in many ways. But again, her approach was not necessarily a clinical medical one, although there were aspects of it. It was about how do we study sleep in populations, so that's okay. epidemiology, and how do we think about interventions that can apply at a population level that tell people how important sleep is and how improving your sleep habits can affect health on a population-wide scale. So let's uh, define terms. What's epidemiology? Yeah, so epidemiology is the study of patterns of disease in populations. It could also be the study of health in populations, depending on which way you want to spin it. So the approach is really just looking at community-wide population-level factors that influence health or disease, depending on what you're studying. And it's it's very much of a, a population science, much in the way ecology is for animals or biology. We're applying similar kinds of principles, okay. as opposed to looking at an individual's physiology and basing the treatment on that. So you so sleep in in this as an example here is mm -hmm. uh, you you weren't necessarily like running a sleep lab. She was running a sleep okay. lab also because a lot of the experimental work you still have to do on individual okay. people. Okay. But when you think of doing those experiments, and that was more on you know studying mechanistically what is happening in in people's brains, and there were a lot of interesting connections there. So there was a clinical side and a psychology side as well. But I think the other thing was when you do a lot of sleep research and you can connect with others. She was also connected to a community of people around the country studying similar questions in different populations about either how the lack of sleep later manifests, for example, with cardiovascular outcomes and making those kinds of longitudinal or epidemiologic connections between factors related to sleep and what can happen to cardiovascular disease rates over time. Or depression is another one that came out at the time that people who tend to have sleep issues we can link that to population levels of depression, um, both in terms of clinical depression and other just signs of possible depression that aren't as, as clinically defined. Okay. But that is an example, I think, of how the correlations between those things can work. Okay. So, so you made the so working in this field, it, you it, you kind of made it your decision. Yeah. I want to go more towards a population orientation mm -hmm. rather than an individual medical model. Right. 
Right. And so you decided to head up to Boston to to do your uh, MPH. Mm -hmm. And where mm -hmm. did you go for that? So I went to Boston University. Okay. And there were two really interesting pieces that led to that decision. The first one was that I was able to work and go to school at night, which was important to me then. And I was really fortunate again. I got a job at New England Medical Center, which is now Tufts New England Medical Center, and worked in the radiology department. But I had just a wonderful set of colleagues who knew that I also was going to school and they were pretty flexible with letting me, you know, go leave early if I came in early the next day to accommodate my classes and were just very encouraging of people who wanted to go to graduate school. So I had a wonderful set of colleagues then. My supervisor was one of the first female radiologists in the nation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really great mentors all the way along. And she was just very encouraging about saying, you know, go to graduate school. It's important. And really the colleagues that I had mostly were residents. So I had my, my boss who was a seasoned radiologist, but then the rest of the people I hung out with were medical residents. So they were also, you know, in a different way, but we were all kind of studying a lot and staying up late at night studying. And it had a great sense of community in a way that created a, a really good energy. I think we were all, we all knew we were working on health and we were working hard and sleep deprived, ironically, <laughs> but um, it was a good community. And Boston, so you had a program there where you could go to school at night, you could work and do your degree in a um, somewhat non-traditional way. The other thing that was really wonderful is I had a lot of colleagues in my cohort at BU who had been around the world. So doing international medicine. I myself have traveled, but I hadn't done healthcare stuff anywhere else. So I met a lot of people who were doing public health nursing overseas, all kinds of other applications, working in Africa, working in other parts of Europe, and just hearing their stories was really, really interesting. And it had great, great faculty, I think, introducing you to just the components of public health, health law, health policy, epidemiology, and of course, the human behavior side, which I had been already quite interested in from my work up until this point. But it really was a, a great place. And the other thing it allowed me to do is for some of my classes, I could work for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, more or less as an intern, but you could do things like grant writing for them and have okay. it count toward part of your coursework. So instead of a final paper, I wrote a diabetes grant for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health that they actually used. And they mentored me through that. And it was kind of a win-win, a very integrated with the community there, which was just wonderful yeah. for a young person to, to be able to do. Great. Yeah. Um, so going to the program, it continued to help nurture your interest in public health? Did yeah. it kind of confirm that this was the direction you wanted Absolutely. to go? Absolutely. In fact, I think what happened there, and part of it was being in the Boston area with so many people, like I mentioned, my mentor at Tufts was someone who had started in radiology and just become this really wonderful female leader. And then I met people who were fairly young professionals, but were doing very diverse and very exciting things. So there was one of my colleagues who worked in the health department who was leading the diabetes initiative. And I just thought that's so, you know, she has a whole department focused on prevention. And it was really, to me, wonderful. And another woman in a separate wing was doing things related to hospitals that we now would consider part of social determinants of health and how hospitals were thinking of integrating care for people who had different health issues, whether it's um, low income, low education. How do we integrate that with their clinical care? Back then, we didn't even have the word social determinants of health, yeah. but she was writing a whole manual with the CDC on that, and I came in as a research assistant and got to hear, and it was just this very dynamic, you know, it seemed like the sky was so blue and so wide open with the different things you could do. 
And I just thought, I'll never run out of variety. I'll yeah. never run out of, you know, any of these things is, is exciting on its own. But there were so many possibilities and different directions that you could take it depending on what the community needed and what your colleagues happened to be doing. So, so where did you kind of make the decision between staying as a practitioner and going on to be, you know, ultimately yeah. coming so so kind of fast forward obviously. You're, <laughs> right. you're here as a as a professor and a researcher. Yeah. So where did you make and so very focused on research, teaching. Yeah. Um uh, and, and we'll talk about your research and you're still very much engaged with the yeah. community, but but kind of where did you make the decision that um, or when did it happen that you were like, you know, I really want to stay more towards the research side and less Not towards till the Not until pretty late. So up until now, A, I never thought of getting my PhD. I wasn't one of those people who had okay. this long term. I thought the MPH was it. It was a terminal degree. That's mm -hmm. for many people how it's intended to be. And I really thought that was going to be the, the end. And I was going to be a public health practitioner. My first job after I graduated with my M MPH was actually in Texas. So then I, I just looked for jobs everywhere. I applied everywhere. And I got a great job at Presbyterian Health System in Dallas, Texas, where I was hired as a health outcomes analyst, but using an epidemiology approach to follow patient populations long term in several of their, so their cardiovascular patients, their orthopedic patients, and some of their maternal child health patients. And why were they interested? They were interested from an outcomes perspective. So for example, if a patient comes in and has cardiac bypass surgery, or at the time minimally invasive procedures were just coming out, if they had regular standard cardiac bypass versus uh, um, an angioplasty or a stent, were their outcomes over three years similar? Were the minimally invasive procedures comparing favorably? Mm -hmm. And the second part of that were, did their patients return to work? Did their patients return to the things that, it's one thing to fix your heart, it's another thing to know that your patients are able to reintegrate into the workforce, into other kinds of outcomes that are now measured as part of long-term patient care. Yeah. So they were very forward-thinking at the time. I mean, now all of this is pretty mainstream. And we're incentivized pretty powerfully. Yeah, and, our, to, and, yep, right? and as back opposed then. Because that's what's running through yeah. my mind. Is, this is the mid-90s. the mid-90s. And have. how this happened is, you know, you'll, you'll, we'll talk about leadership later, but a vice president and a nursing quality researcher, both who also had public health degrees, who got together and realized, mm, we want someone in this position who can bring this kind of public health methods lens. And they must have convinced their higher ups that this approach was important. And together, the leadership created a structure for that. So at the time, I think that was very unique, not so much anymore. Yeah. But they were really, I was, again, fortunate that I just kind of landed in a, in a place where people had already set that train in motion. So you were there for a Two, three years? About two and a half to three yeah. years. And okay. so to answer your question, so first of all, it was a great experience. Yeah. Again, I, I, was, I learned so much. I learned about all of these different ways of dealing with now a clinical population, but using the tools I'd learned in epidemiology to mm. measure those outcomes. What got me to decide that I wanted to go back is most of the patients that I was seeing were heart patients, and that's always been a big interest of mine. But I was seeing them at the very end stage of their disease process. So in public health, when we talk about primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention, mm -hmm. which I just did with my students a little while ago, you know, the primary side is how can we prevent disease in the first place? 
things like diet and exercise and not smoking. And then secondary prevention is through kind of moderate disease management or screening processes, screening for high blood pressure, identifying disease early or risk factors early. If people look like they need some counseling about diet or managing prediabetes, for example, getting their disease risk factors under control before something complicated happens. And then tertiary prevention, which is really what my experience here was focused on, is people are already pretty sick. They already have heart disease that's bad enough that you need a full bypass procedure or at least something of an angioplasty or a stent. So you're already kind of at a fairly advanced progression of disease. Mm -hmm. And while that was really exciting, more and more I felt pulled back to working on the primary and secondary aspects and having some influence over that. So I I love the work I was doing with the very complicated patients, but I said, boy, I would have loved, again, from the population lens, to work on influencing that population trajectory earlier so we can prevent people from getting in this situation in the first place, which is always a work in progress. But in order to do that, too, I said, well, in order to do that, I need to build my skill sets in how to do research around prevention whether it's primary or secondary, and really fine-tune the kinds of skills that you would learn in epidemiology or biostatistics so that you can lead the kinds of studies that investigate those questions, interventions that can be primary or secondary prevention, and eventually lead that kind of research. And you couldn't really do that with an MPH degree. But you could have... So I guess, I mean, your focus... What I hear you saying is your focus was always kind of on the research and the desire to discover what it is we could do. Yeah. But there were, even with the MPH, you mm-hmm. could have said, well, you know what, I'm, I've am i been working in a hospital, yeah. but I really want to be more on the primary and secondary side. So there are organizations that are already, yeah. that are implementing it, There policy. are. So, but I wanted, but wanted to be to... the one coming up with the question. Right. Okay. All right. <laughs> and Why having, is that? How, how did um, that... I think in part because I knew that eventually, I, A, I would probably be able to do it. So I admired the people who had yeah. taught me up until yeah. this point. Yeah. I really, as I mentioned, I just looked up to these people who had guided me to that probably you know late 20s part of my career and thought, someday I, I want to be able to do that for other people who are coming up. But in order to do that, my own skills have to be more advanced than they are now. And then I I did a lot of thinking about, well, what exactly are those more advanced skills? And I landed on epidemiology in part just for the methodological rigor, because Uh at the time, and I think it's still true, you know, you can really um, say that the kinds of things you learn in terms of a really good epidemiology and biostatistics program, if you're going to do research that's federally funded or that has that level of rigor that's expected for some of the better medical journals, um, they're looking for you to know how to do those things. What do you mean by rigor? So for a lot of this is quantitative. So knowing how to design a study so that you can know um, that you're recruiting enough patients so that you can statistically answer a question, knowing that you will be able to design a study with, let's say it's a clinical trial, you'll need to randomize people appropriately. If it's not, and there are many cases where it's unethical to do a clinical trial, how are you going to match groups so that you can answer a question about an intervention without having other what we call confounders, other things that might mess up the relationship that you're studying, because there's always things that are different in patient groups. So you learn the tools about how to both design studies, 
how to minimize confounding when it occurs, which it usually does, unless you have the perfect randomized trial. Which you rarely do. Yeah, which you rarely do and you rarely can afford. <laughs> so a lot of the training is what I call statistical cleanup. <laughs> so you learn that you know you get some data and there are techniques that you can do to try to make sure that you are controlling statistically for factors that might distort the relationship of interest between either the intervention and the outcome or certain characteristics of patients that you think are related to this outcome, but what if it's really something else? Okay. And you learn the ways that you can at least account for what those things are and quantify them. So largely this was, as you can see, quantitative training. And that was, at least at the time, I think looked upon as one of the standards of rigor. I think what I've since learned, and that'll come out later, is that the, qualita the qualitative piece is so important. And thankfully now the emphasis is on mixed methods research, you know, really bringing both quantitative and qualitative approaches together. Great. So that's what I evolved to later. But at the time I was like, I don't know how to do the stuff that yeah. I just told you about. Yeah. And I wanted, I was sort of at the point where at some point in my career, I don't want to rely on other people to do that. I might want to supervise them, but I also, it's like the cook in the kitchen. The cook in the restaurant or the chef has to know how to make all the stuff <laughs> if they want the restaurant to run really well. Yeah. And that's sort of how I looked at okay. it. But you didn't go straight to a PhD from, from Dallas. You actually went down to Atlanta, worked for the CDC. I never actually oh. went to Atlanta. Oh, I did a lot okay. of work remotely for the CDC, okay. but I didn't live there. Okay. So a lot of my projects so, were kind of con what we would think of as consulting projects for the CDC. Okay. And so I, I did a lot of that concurrently while I was still in Texas. Oh, all right. All right. Yeah. So, so you were starting to, you were already starting to kind of reach out. Yeah. So what were, so you were a research consultant for, for the Centers for Disease Control and you were looking at what? Then I was looking at really, they have a guide called the Community Guide to Preventive Services. So a lot of my work was helping them fill in chapters of this guide, which is now kind of the Bible to prevention that I told you about. And their whole approach back then as they were building this was to think about how can we provide a tool for practitioners, not just for researchers, that if they want to know, for example, what are some primary prevention strategies for heart disease or diabetes that have been vetted, that are actually evidence-based, whether it's primary prevention, secondary prevention, how do we consolidate those? How do we make a recommendation to practitioners about, you know, is it all about fish oil? Is it about the Mediterranean diet? So it was really teams of people, lots of teams of people working on consolidating that evidence and then using a protocol to judge the rigor of whether a particular thing was evidence-based or not. Okay. And now it's all interactive. You can go to this tool and of course, you can do it all online and find these answers if you're a practitioner or a public health person or even a medical person, that's all in one place. But building that right. <laughs> took many, many, many years. So I just sort of came in as almost just a helper. Again, there were teams above me. I was part of the diabetes one mostly. And they would assign us just tons of journal articles to, to weed through and rate. And then that would all go into what now we would think of as a systematic review. But this was a manual process <laughs> at the time. And we would score them. We would then discuss the pros and cons and whether an article merited, you know, would it go into the pile that we would consider contributing to hardcore evidence or something where the design, as I mentioned, was so weak that it was nice information, but we couldn't really count it toward the evidence base for a particular intervention. Very interesting. So yeah. you were working. So you were working in Texas. You were still at the hospital. You were starting to connect with the CDC, yep. uh, doing some of the primary and secondary work that yeah. you were interested in. 
So at what point did you actually wind up making the jump to the PhD? Well, so I was probably toward the maybe year two, two and a half, already thinking about what schools would be appropriate and doing some early investigation. And then it wasn't really until, yeah, I guess it was my third year in Texas where I was pretty sure, okay, I've, I've made the decision. I want to go back and get a PhD. And then it was a pretty hard decision about which program I wanted to do. For a while, I considered a health policy program right away. But I think what drew me to UNC was, at the time, their reputation for methods. And it still is one of the best places to get a really strong methods background. And I knew that if that was the part of myself that I wanted to evolve, that I would go and just kind of throw myself into the fire and try to learn as much methodology as I could from the people who were really among the best in the country at, at teaching that. And then I could a- apply that topically, which will come out later. Once I had that toolbox, I figured I could do whatever I want with it, kind of taking it back to the Brown University approach. It's like, okay, once I know that stuff, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> 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 so that's kind of how I, how I approached it. And then it was just, you know, when I got in, I was pretty excited. Okay. So, so yeah. when did you start it at UNC? Um, boy, so it must have been 99 or 2000, I was going to okay. say. I think it was the fall of 99. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was the fall of 99. And I came in, they give you TA ships there. So okay. the nice thing there is you come in and you more or less say that you're going to work as a TA and or an RA for most of the time that you're there. So TA teaching assistant, yeah. RA research assistant. Yes, okay. yes. And I think your very first semester, you don't do either one. You're just sort of getting your okay. feet wet. But then... Um, and that's how you actually pay for school. Well, you pay for part of school. Okay. I, wouldn't, I don't think it pays for the whole oh, really? thing, but okay. it really helped. It helped okay. a lot. Okay. So you are, you are getting some stuff. So, I, I mean, I'd like to kind of get a sense yeah. of, of that in part because people listening to this might actually be thinking sure. about, well, would I want to do a PhD? Yeah. Do I come out with a right. book or and so, loans or how do I Well, you stuff? probably will still come out with some <laughs> loans because it usually doesn't cover the entire okay. free ride. But like I said, it is a big difference from having at least part of your tuition covered through what they call a traineeship. So people listening to this who are thinking about going for a PhD, when you interview, ask you know what kind of traineeships are available. And most of these that I'm talking about are the way they work is the school will get funding from the CDC or the NIH to provide this level of training. And that's how the money is sort of eventually passed down to the teaching assistants and the research assistants who are helping both to deliver the content of the teaching facility, but are being trained. And that is actually through a federal grant that the the highest um, universities are usually getting those grants to deliver okay. that kind of training. Okay. Yeah. So the government is kind of saying, hey, we this is a public good to, to, to teach yeah. these young people yeah. to keep increasing the workforce, the research right, workforce. Right, right. There are various grant mechanisms that are really called training grants, broadly speaking, that these institutions will get in order to fund that kind of work. Okay. So you, you got a RA, TA yep. kind of roles. Yeah. Why is that important and helpful? To, to me, personally? I mean, or, financially, obviously, yes. but, but like... But also, what? like, literally, and I think in a way the government's thinking is correct, it's, it's how you learn. So you have some of the best professors who are really the, the ones technically running the course, and usually they've created the syllabi, but then you are learning to really impart that content to other students, usually by your second year. So you would have had to take the course yourself, number one, and do pretty well in it. 
But then you are learning how to teach, for example, what we think of as epidemiology labs, where they're applying things like, how do I calculate an incidence rate? How do I do a prevalence rate? How do I look at relationships between exposure and disease? And there's some laboratory kind of problem solving things they can do. And we were really running those sessions with the students and sometimes lecturing, not always. The lecturing part was balanced between the primary instructor and us. But don't forget, these are classes where there are probably 500 students sometimes right. in a class. So breaking that up so you had several TAs that could work in smaller groups with students on the problem-solving part, especially as it becomes highly quantitative, that's how a lot of these institutions manage that. So the primary professors, the overall big, le big lecture doing the syllabus and deciding on the content, and then delivery of the content is usually done by TAs. So I've talked to a lot of, I've interviewed a lot of physicians on, yeah. on the podcast and we've talked about medical school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, PhD is, is advanced graduate level education. How is it different from either the undergraduate experience that a lot of people have had or even, say, a professional master's? How, how, is, how is a PhD Just different? Just going through the process, the process of getting a PhD. And, yeah. So, you know, I think part of it is it's very much also driven by what your PhD is in. Okay. And I think what you're sort of led through is that that ability to, number one, decide on a question that involves inquiry. Because most PhDs, there are exceptions, but are trying to get you to that point of, of doing your own research, whether it's clinical research or, or something else. So how do you begin to think really strategically about asking a research question, knowing the body of research well enough that you can know where your work is situated, and then the right tools, whether it's epidemiology or something else, to investigate that question appropriately. And that is a long-term <laughs> long thing. But I think that's the difference, is it's really setting you up from an inquiry-based perspective. Mm -hmm. And then you and your mentor sort of fill in the tool set that you need. So there's still a lot of back and forth about what are the approaches that I need? What are the boundaries of knowledge that I need yeah. to know? And then when you get out, you should be able to A, teach those things to other people, apply them from a research perspective. And if you're doing work that is community-based like mine is, be able to work with collaborators in the community on actually solving some practical problem in yeah. healthcare or public health or broader community-related issues. I mean, so a lot of people will say to me periodically, well, I, I want to get my PhD. And, and my yeah. response usually is, well, do you want to do research? I mm -hmm. mean, why is it you want a PhD? Right? Yeah, and that that is still a great question to ask. And I think that's something that's changing, both in terms of why people want to get PhDs and what you can do with a PhD. And there's pros and cons. It's sort of interesting territory right now. I think the assumption was always that you would get a PhD to be a professor or to land in an academic institution. Mm -hmm. And I read some statistics quite recently, I think, from the National Science Foundation that maybe only about a third of PhDs now actually end up in academic positions. Um, and that includes, you know, some people move to industry, some people who do, for example, a PhD in chemistry might go work for a ph pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things that aren't hard to imagine, but then there are a lot of avenues for people who might want to take their skill set and work now in the nonprofit sector or in other aspects of whether it's clinical care or even parts of the educational system where you maybe didn't need a PhD before. But now if you're looking at, for example, how to improve school outcomes broadly and you want to try some interesting evidence-based approaches, 
There are people now in education who have gotten a PhD in order to be able to do that. But it's also such an investment that I think people have to ask the question that you're asking and say, if I'm not guaranteed an academic job, right. which many people are not anymore, what would I do? And think about that side because it's no longer this direct link between, for some people it is, but it's not that everyone who gets a PhD is going to end up being a professor. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of it as, you know, yeah, I'm going to teach, right? And it's really yeah. not... That's yeah. not what a PhD is. It's for it's to teach you the skills for inquiry. Yeah, yeah, and, right. And, and you so. can apply those through teaching or mm -hmm. leading research or you know doing some kind of whether it's in industry and you're actually making something or yeah. helping to create something. But yes, that's the difference. I think you know now there are PhDs that are purely meant to be more focused on the practice. So there's a doctor of public health, right. which is really doesn't have as much of a research focus, but it's all about the, the practice. And there are other variations of PhDs that maybe have less emphasis on research. But I think by and large, there's an expectation that you're going to learn how to do things or apply new possible solutions, and at the same time be able to answer the question of whether that solution is working. So there's, whether you call it research or evaluation, if you're doing something that's costing money and asking people to change, and you're leading that, you have to ask the question of, is it worth it at some point? And you can answer that from an economic perspective, a quality of life perspective. That's where you have to know what outcomes am I trying to change? Yeah. And how am I evaluating those? And those are parts of the skills that you learn. What surprised you about going to get a PhD? Um, Okay, what surprised me? Well, of course, it's hard and it takes a long time and you're poor for a long, long time. But I don't know that that would be a surprise. You know, I think part of what surprised me probably, and it was partly a function of where I was, I think I was fortunate to spend time in the South for a while because having been someone who grew up in the Northeast, and then I did move around to Texas, but really spending almost 10 years in North Carolina and learning more about the history of civil rights in our country. And many of my professors had been very tied to the civil rights movement. And then understanding that from a place where the, the history of slavery was still quite alive and really hearing from people who had lived through this, spending time with African-American communities and, um, they would show me trees and say, this is where people used to be lynched right here. This is, you know, and just that way of understanding things that I had known from an academic perspective that a health disparity is when, you know, there's a difference in health between one group and another, but then seeing what that meant and physically hearing and experiencing it through the eyes of other people who had been a very um, affected by that history and were now also advocating for us to tell the truth about history was so powerful. And I had a number of professors who helped show us that through doing research in certain ways, which is how the qualitative piece came in, you can allow those narratives and those other ways of perceiving experience to enter into the research process itself. And that's where I bit, I said, hmm, my, my quantitative stuff is great, but when I'm thinking about issues that are so socially complex and carry these very sensitive sides to them, how am I going to enable other people who may not have a PhD and maybe you know, having a very important lesson to tell us, but they're not used to conveying academic information in the same manner, how can we bring that forward? And that's where techniques like photo voice or other, there's a lot of different techniques, but it's first noticing that 
we have a responsibility to do that. And then saying, how are we going to enable others to bring their perspective forward, especially for public health, where this is a central thread in the story. So you you started to perceive a connection between social justice, yeah, um, his, historical uh, injustice, mm-hmm. and health health uh, health outcomes. Yes, and yes. And I think again, it was that you read this stuff in books. I mean, it's but boy, to to live it and see it and hear it from people who have definitely been are still carrying the weight of it around with them every day that that's very very powerful and I think um, you know just because of where I was and the connections that faculty members had to communities with environmental justice issues and the ways of allowing people to come forward into we had people come into class and tell us about what it was like to live in certain times or experience certain things and it just was so different from reading it <laughs> it was Life-changing, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, so. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of the narrative <laughs> yeah. approach, hence the podcast. Right, um, right. Okay, so you, um, what did you do your dissertation on? So you, yeah. you're a big part of, of the, the PhD process is to discover a question or find right. a question and yeah. apply all those methods yeah. that you've been learning to it. So what did you, what did you wind up settling on? So I ended up doing, um, the term we use now is the built environment and health. And it kind of ties back to what I was talking about. So the built environment ranges from anything to how we design our cities, whether those create aspects of segregated parts of communities, um, how we use land. So the policies we have around land use, around transportation. And what we think about are those things allow people to have access to healthy things or to not have access to them. And this whole sort of intersection between urban planning, which includes rural, not just urban, and community neighborhood design and their relationship to health outcomes, historically had been there in the 1800s. In a way, that's what John Snow, the most famous epidemiologist did, is he looked at you know water systems in London and how they were linked to cholera. But then things kind of got, for a while, there wasn't really much connection between urban design or urban planning and how our built environment looks and what the health outcomes of communities are. But then it kind of had a resurgence right around the time that I was going back to graduate school where people were returning to those historical questions, whether they're part of our segregated past or part of the way we build things now. And we know that even how we build transportation corridors can allow people to access healthcare or not, or food deserts, which you've studied. These right. are all kind of byproducts of, of how we design. And so I started taking courses with urban planning professionals, and it kind of ties back to the Brown University aspect of thinking where I thought, you know, I can see that there's really a connection between both social justice aspects and access to having or not having access to very important resources that then enable us to either eat healthy or be physically active or access healthcare. All of the things we know we should do behaviorally are somewhat structured by both our physical and our social environment. And so at the time, most of my professors were starting to work on these built environment questions. And I thought they were pretty fascinating. And I knew that I was still interested in cardiovascular outcomes broadly, but to break that down, which you have to do when you're doing a dissertation, is I said, well, I really am interested in specifically the physical activity piece, which is a modifiable risk factor, Mm -hmm. and some of the nutrition pieces, but more of my work was focused on physical activity and how that can either prevent diabetes and obesity and ultimately 
um, lead to either reducing levels of heart disease. And then I wanted to look at how our community-built environments either support um, healthy behaviors and maybe reduce obesity, or whether they do the opposite, which are now called obesogenic environments. So environments that promote sitting around <laughs> and driving your car long distances instead of walking. It sounds like modern life. Yeah, it, uh, a lot of it is modern life. And that's, you know, there is a big historical piece to this kind of an evolutionary piece. But I think it's also some conscious de decisions that we've made about how, again, how we build things. Mm -hmm. And so this was a chance for me to get back into interdisciplinary work. And I knew, again, that I wanted to look at something that I think has a relationship to health, but has a whole other sort of um, academic tradition behind it. So folks in urban planning and social justice had thought about these things for a long time, but they hadn't kind of connected them to health outcomes. And I was fortunate, again, to have two, um, I had two dissertation chairs who were willing at the time to lead a student through this very interdisciplinary project, which itself now is risky because that wasn't a big deal then. Now there are whole departments created around built environment and health. Yeah. But back oh, then, wow. there was probably skepticism to say, really, what's your student doing exactly? Yeah. And um, so I had two people who were really supportive. One was an urban planner and one was a, a really good epidemiologist. And they really helped me to take both the, um, the lenses of those two approaches and the tools. So I was mostly using my epidemiology training because that was my home department, but then applying them to some of the indicators from urban planning, the way that we think about either a good urban design or a not so good one, and then trying to look statistically at whether that actually related to different rates of physical activity and different rates of obesity over time. That's fascinating. And, and, and I mean, my own knowledge of, of academics is, oh, that happens periodically yeah. in, in various literatures. Like I'm thinking of uh, Gary Becker, uh, who's a uh, Nobel winning uh, economist who, who in I think the 60s took uh, took the tools of, of market economics and applied them to the family and yes, questions exactly like, like and, that. And and everybody was like, "That's crazy. You, you don't. Yeah. Do, we don't do that. Right. We're, we're economists. We don't talk about right. families." You know? Yes, and, and so but it's, it's a very similar. Which I think was again, you know, coming back to to Brown, my experience there. It's like, well, why why wouldn't you think of doing that, or at least investigate it? You might end up deciding it is <laughs> crazy, which right. happens too. But just think about: could we learn from a, applying the tools of a different discipline or a different way of thinking about a problem? to a completely different problem. And to this day, that's really exciting to me. I think to some people, it's just like, well, no thanks. <laughs> but um, I think for people who enjoy doing that kind of synergistic work, it's really exciting. Yeah. And the, the downside of that is, of course, you have to either learn all that stuff of two different fields yourself, or you get to a point where you have enough colleagues who are experts in something and are willing to collaborate and you just find a way of working together where you yourself don't have to know anything, everything, but you have to be able to synthesize people with very different skill sets and bring their research together. So I think you're right. I think it's very much there are times in history where different literatures sort of converge in certain ways. Yeah. 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 
That's 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 really neat. So it's a so I mean your dissertation advisors were taking a bit of a chance. On I, you. I now I realize more than I did then. Yeah. I think how how much of a gift that was. Yeah. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. Um. So you finished the PhD. You yep. actually did the, dissert- <laughs> I did the dissertation. Right? Yes. What's that process like? So for people who are thinking, I'd like to do a PhD. So you've got to do this thing called a dissertation. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's, that all, what's that process? You know, and a lot of it, again, is how you and your, your advisor or co-advisors build a structure for doing that. And for me, part of it was learning some of the, the language and lenses of this other discipline, urban planning, which I really didn't know that much about until I entered into this process. But um, so if you're just doing one discipline, I suppose you can take it through a little more quickly. But really, again, you're learning how to look at the entire um, body of work that came before the question that you're interested in. What new things are you possibly bringing to it, whether it's from a methods perspective or just from a, a different perspective that you might be adding. And then leading you through, a lot of it is about focusing your question. So there's always the idea of, well, what's feasible given the time and the money that you have? And the other thing I really liked about my program is we approached it from the beginning as writing papers that would ultimately go in a journal. That's a decision usually between your advisors and sometimes it's the university that you're in. So instead of writing just a long narrative that could be your dissertation, Uh you are already supposed to think about three separate questions that would go in three separate journals. And those would become the chapters. The chapters would ultimately become papers in a perfect world. That's the type of dissertation I did. Yeah, I think more and more it's, I think maybe in the humanities, not so much, but in a lot of the Mm -hmm. sciences or health sciences, it's pretty much standard now. And so that was great because it allowed me to work with my mentors again on how to take this urban planning and public health approach and apply it. My first couple of papers were looking within the state of North Carolina and getting into some of those social justice issues. And then I think the paper I shared with you was a much more national look at just some national trends, pooling data across okay. the nation for that one. Okay. So that's actually, oh, that's the um, uh, urban containment policies yeah. paper. We'll talk about that yeah. in a minute. Okay, great. Um, so you did a, so you, so, so then you do this thing called a dissertation defense, right? Yes. So yeah. So, well, you know, and that again, it, it looks so different depending on where, what department you're in and, and what the expectations are. Yeah. So for us, it was, again, it was methodologically heavy. You had to really think through your statistical approach, um, the limitations of that, what new things you were bringing to the table. So my question was somewhat new, but it also brought challenges in terms of how we measure, how do you know, how do we measure urban environments and make that into an exposure? That's really to take it back to epidemiology, I was treating that as an exposure and the outcomes were these obesity and physical activity endpoints. And then that involves making that into a measure. How do you actually create a valid measurement of a good urban environment or a not so good one. And so all of those things that have to do with measurement and the philosophy of the the approach that you're taking, which we call epistemology, and then, um, you know, your, your approach. So if you are doing a statistical approach, all of the limitations, the pros and cons, what different techniques are you trying, which ones do you ultimately land on, and then being able to interpret the results of your work and position them back into the larger body of research that you're hopefully adding to. That's really in a nutshell what you're yeah, doing. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I think one point I want to kind of draw out for people who don't, who think about research, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about research and on the academic side, it's not 
like the research you did when you were an undergrad and you were you or or even maybe in high school where you were like doing a book report or right like, yeah right, we're trying to find something that no one has ever looked at before yes or right. at least hasn't looked at in that way as right. you mentioned like maybe taking away that one discipline has looked at it and sort of seeing if it could be applied to this other disciplinary question so it doesn't have to i always use the analogy of jazz music it doesn't have to be that you totally invented the tune right but you're learning how to improvise according to the other musicians around you okay that's sort of the that's analogy cool. that that i think of because we're almost always building on a tradition that someone else has built up underneath right. us but um, it's being able to be creative enough to say, oh, what if I play a little bit of this? <laughs> will that add or will it not add? And um, so I think that's, that's the approach. And I think the other thing that you mentioned with your question is that, at least for myself, part of my appeal with the urban planning work is it had a very practical side to it. So at the time, there were real questions sort of in cities making decisions about revising what they call their master plans. How are we going to change either housing developments or transportation corridors, reinvestment projects that could either, now that we're studying this, that could either lead people to behave in a more uh, healthy way, depending on how those decisions fell out, or it could lead people to live more sedentary lives or isolate them further, um, kind of thinking through the public health consequences of very practical decisions that real communities were facing at the time yeah. and continue to face yeah. today. So, so your research potentially could and ha probably has yeah. influenced how people build or add to I think collectively. collectively. I mean, I think, and that's that's where the Robert Wood Johnson funding, which really invested in not only myself, but a number of people who were doing this built environment research at the time, um, in order to create an evidence base. Because like I told you with the Community Guide to Preventive Research, if people were thinking, well, what is the evidence for that this even makes the difference? I'd say maybe 10 years ago, there really wasn't much. We had some good anecdotal thoughts and intuitions about what would work. But there hadn't been this kind of evidence that had been created from an interdisciplinary body of researchers that people could point to and say, well, all of these studies have shown that, you know, if you build communities this way, people are likely to walk more, for example. Mm -hmm. That wasn't there. And yeah. so it partly took an investment from this foundation. And then I think through that work, enough teams got going and it kind of took on its own its own entity that is continuing to this day. But now we have an evidence base for that. So you uh, you you defended and you did a postdoc. Yeah. What's a postdoc? So a postdoc is usually where you stay on for even more school. Because <laughs> <laughs> the PhD wasn't enough. Because the PhD wasn't <laughs> enough. Usually what happens, it's um, when you're working on some really great stuff with your advisors and you want to continue that. And here's, here's the real thing that is important for people who are thinking of going on into an academic job. It gives you some protected time before you start teaching and doing all the other things we know we do to actually just be immersed in getting your research products out there, publishing your papers from your dissertation, maybe getting some grants that can set you up for your first research job or, or teaching job, and really just making sure that you've, you've closed all those loose ends from your dissertation, which mostly means publishing and had a chance to establish yourself as a junior researcher sometimes yeah. before you enter the full fray of being a professor. Yeah. 
So you did that. Yeah. Um, you, did you actually, so following the postdoc, um, did you actually move out to Washington? State? I moved out to Washington for a year. Okay. Because even then I was, I, I loved what um, Washington State is probably one of the most progressive states in terms of merging research and practice. So they really bring, um, in their public health department, most people are doctorally prepared and bring a, a research lens to the practice of public health within a public health department, okay. which is really, really neat. And so for a while, I wasn't really sure if I, just like we talked about, I didn't know if an academic home was ultimately where I wanted to be. And so I was exploring other ways of continuing on this sort of research practice continuum, but maybe doing it from a health department right. setting rather than so an academic one. So you were in the one. public health uh Public Health Department for Seattle, King County? Yes, for King County. And their, like I said, some of their research, especially with this built environment work, is really just still some of the best research that's out there. So it's coming out of a, but it's coming out of a... It's a, coming out of a health department, and most of them have dual academic appointments. Okay. Yeah. All right, so... But again, it's a really neat model, and mm -hmm. it drives, I think, the quality of both the research and the application of the research that's really integrated. The research and the practice are, are tied together in a really neat way there. So it was a great place to be. I think, um, in a way, I, I may not have, have left, but my mom got really, really sick, and she was still back on the East Coast. So a lot okay. of my, my move back was motivated in part for that. A lot of it was for that reason, not because I wanted to leave Washington. Oh, well, we're happy you left Washington <laughs> because, because in 2009, you landed here at, uh, at UNH. Yeah. So, so some of it was a family decision to yeah. come here. Yeah. Uh, what else attracted you to, to And then, to the you know, more and more, I really thought that I, I would like to teach. Mm -hmm. And even though you could have probably, some of the folks I work with in Washington do teach as well, but just being able to think about, well, when I get to the point where I want to work with younger people, and maybe there are people who are interested in public health, how can I be of service to that? And that's where the appeal of teaching really began to, to be something okay. that I thought more and more I wanted to be invested okay. in. And so I looked at a couple of jobs in this area. And I think what I really loved about UNH was a little bit like Brown was people here said, well, it's not that you're going to be part of a medical school, which has some pros and some cons in terms of doing public health research. But that kind of means that you can collaborate with people who are doing life sciences stuff. You're not often in a medical school, you're kind of put in a, in a niche and it's you're more or less under the, a lot of rules about grant funding and what you can and can't do. But here, it was the whole idea of interdisciplinarity and being free to pursue interdisciplinary research as long as it had health at its core. Mm -hmm. You know, and that has been something I've loved, really loved about being here is I collaborate with all kinds of people and I usually can find health at its core. <laughs> so okay. it's, it's freed up a lot of avenues that way. So you get, you came to UNH in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, you became a associate professor in 2015. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? Oh, it means like you're like an intermediate professor. Because <laughs> <laughs> like um, I say to people, I'm an assistant professor. I know. Like, well, I truly, it's yeah. It's 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 really. I think that's one of those things that to explain it to anyone outside of <laughs> academics is it's it's a. Uh, it's interesting. I think it's partly just our tradition of, you know, what we label our growth and experience and um, our our learning processes. We go through the academic 
continuum, very similar to in a corporation as you know, you move from low level to mid-management to running the company. To me, it's um there there are hallmarks of that, of course, but I think overall it's more your your personal evolution through the institution and through the whole academic experience, which is as you go from the assistant level where you're establishing yourself, and then as you become the intermediate level, I think you're kind of in that interesting place where you're still doing a lot of your own stuff, but thinking more and more about bringing up the next generation. So your eyes are both forward and and back. (laughs) And then hopefully when you get to the top level, at least what I hope is that a lot of that is then largely about creating institutional structures that support the people underneath you. So. Um, So the difference between assistant and associate is tenure. Tenure, but in, think about what tenure means, right? right? Well, so, so it what means does it mean? so it means the number of publications in yeah. your discipline, uh, yeah. how strong your teaching scores have been. So mm-hmm. your three areas of research, teaching, and service probably moving from a place where you know when you're assistant, you're just carving that out. What does your footprint look like? What is your area of research? How are you teaching? What are you teaching? And then, you know, your service is just sort of where people need you to help out. And then as you get into more leadership roles, you know, you're probably maybe leading some research teams, um, you know, teaching, depending on where you are, your, your way that you approach teaching might change. If you're fortunate to be able to create your own courses, maybe you have some different courses than what you had before. And your service will probably go toward, um, you know, leading either state or national level initiatives that are meant to really make a difference in whatever your field is, sometimes at the international level. Yeah. So that's the difference. Okay. So you talked a little bit about bringing up the next generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and one of your interests in coming to an academic environment as opposed to being at, you know, at, a, at say, a, even a, a dynamic health department like you were yeah. at, in Washington. You know, and we talked about this—the idea of mentoring and collaboration. So, yeah. you want to tell, talk a little bit about what that means to you to, sure. to mentor students? And- yeah. So, I think for me, mentoring is both part of being grateful to the wonderful mentors that I had, and really, as we've talked, it's been wonderful to, for me to reflect back on just how much of a difference each of those people at those points, just believing in someone and showing them what their potential can be, and then giving them sometimes some guidance and tools that can nudge them along their way, and sometimes taking a chance on their success, which can be risky to someone depending on what point in the career they are. Those are all things that people shared with me and just gave so so generous so generously that at the time I didn't even realize how much it it meant. Right. And then looking back, I'm thinking, wow, you know, if I had not had those people behind me, I certainly would not be where I am. And at the same time, just thinking, what parts of of what they gave me can I really just a sort of deliver in my own way? Because we all have our own styles, our own ways of relating to people. But really, I think a lot of it was encouraging students to, A, find an area they care about. So find an area that you're passionate about. And before anyone tells you it's crazy, really think about, is there a way that I could maybe bridge two things that I'm interested in or look more deeply into something from a different way? And then just be willing to hear a student out and give them a chance, even if at first, you know, people try and fail in life. And that's that's part of being open to that too, but sharing what you know, both from your own toolbox of of knowledge. But I think a lot of it is showing someone that you support their journey. That's probably the biggest thing. And it's not something that necessarily can be quantified or taught, but giving someone 
the chance to say, yeah, if you want to try this out and you're committed, I'm behind you 100%. That, that fits well with the, you know, you know mentoring is one of my areas <laughs> of research, so that yeah. fits well with the literature. You know, yep. Kathy Cram kind of talked about, you know, mentoring as having uh, a psychosocial support portion yep. and a coaching portion. Yeah. So that's kind of what you just said. <laughs> Good. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't totally botch that one because I haven't read a whole lot. It's, this is more, a, right. I should. I, I actually hope to more formally, especially as, like you said, as I go into more higher levels of, of service and leadership, really apply some more evidence-based practices to mentoring. But so far, it's been just really driven by kind of my, my values more than anything else. Leadership in a in an academic environment, what do you what makes a good leader in an academic environment? Oh boy, so that is a great question. I think you have to you have to know the structure that you're in first. You have to understand the environment in which you're leading, and that can take a long time just to to get to that point. But then I think so much of it is understanding how to evolve the institution by evolving the people in it, and that can mean anything from the people who are at you know the student stage, the people who are at the junior faculty stage or staff whatever there and then you know working with other leaders around you who hopefully if you can create some common ground you can mutually support that evolution institutionally and i think you know at the assistant to associate level it's a lot of finding individual people whether they're colleagues or students just like i talked about who you feel I think if I can just, you know, add a little bit of this or they're asking me to help with that, being available to them. And then as you get more into the higher levels of leadership, it's probably around taking some chances to change things that you and hopefully it's not just you, but if other people believe maybe we could do things differently, maybe we could create some changes because the world around us is changing, you know, that becomes both difficult and complicated. But I think really necessary to be a good leader is that you have to get to a place where you're willing to stand up for change. And that can go either in a good way or a bad way. As we all know, part right. of it is taking a chance. Yeah. But hopefully coming to that from a place where you've understood the institution enough to say, well, what if we collaborated in this way? What if we allowed these other incentives to change the way people work together and being able to talk that through other people? Yeah. And you usually need the support of people above you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. so building and building that support yeah. that would probably be a part yes. of leadership. Yeah. Well, so you also became a teacher for the first time. I yeah. Think. Or you maybe had some as Only part of from TA. what I mentioned through the yeah. TA stuff. But again, that was, you were more or less told the con, here's the content. Right. And you've had your, you've had it before. And so it definitely was great experience, but not really. Colored by numbers kind of. Yeah. Thing, mm -hmm. As opposed to. Yeah. So becoming a teacher for the first time and really being responsible for the material, what was that like? Yeah, so actually being responsible for the material, I loved because I think it again comes from what did I love about when I had this course, but what has changed and what can I add? So the creative aspect of that was exciting. I think the hardest part for me was having taught only graduate students because when I was a TA, I wasn't doing undergrads. I was teaching other MPH students. Um, and then coming back to the undergraduate teaching environment and really understanding where undergraduates were in terms of their ability to study these concepts. And that took me a while because unlike grad students where they've, they've made a commitment to a certain field of study, 
Um, they're probably investing a lot of money themselves as opposed to their parents to, to right. being there. Um, the motivation is different. The, the, a lot of things about the developmental stage that people are at in their lives is different. Sure. And I just sort of overlooked that, I think, the first couple of years. I definitely did, too. I came from <laughs> teaching grad students, and it was, it was eye-opening. Yeah, yeah. And I think at first it was a little bit of shell shock, but then, you know, trying to ask myself, well, at one point I, I wasn't always a grad student either. Right. <laughs> and, and really just trying to get back in touch with what do students need, what is some of their curiosity about whether or not they end up in public health, because not all of them will, but what are some aspects of learning about the process of either thinking about public health or some of the tools that could be helpful to their lives, no matter yeah. what they become, and kind of taking it back to that and thinking about how to make content exciting, which I know you do a lot of, whether it's through that experiential learning, hearing directly from people, or now we have all the different tools like yeah. video and stuff and technology. And we have a lot more tools at our disposal and how we use them that can be the trick. But trying to build that in in a way that made students excited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about your research, um, some, some examples of your research. So uh, one of the things you talk about, uh, you know, when you're talking about your research is a framework you call the or, or refer to as the socio-ecological model. Um, why is that framework important to you and what, sure. what is it? You know? Okay, so all it really is, and I like it in part for its simplicity, is it's a way of thinking about a complex system which includes us and the world we live in. It's a way to think about it in layers, a lot of the way that you would think about peeling an onion. So when I first teach this to my students, I say, well, think about an onion and at the core of the onion is a person or it could be a population of people. And they have internal characteristics at their core, which is everything from their genomics, their physiology, their neurology, all of those intrinsic properties that are centered in the individual. And then we can think of the next layer out in the onion, which is the relationships between people. And so now what we're building around the person are the things that influence the person, either the person's health or the person's psychological outlook, whichever things we're interested in. But we're starting from just their internal characteristics and then we're moving out to other things that affect them in layers. So the next layer would be social relationships. That's all the work now around social support, social networks, mentoring, all of that stuff. And then the next layer out from that is goes by different names, but either community level or institutions. So we all spend a lot of our time in institutional structures, whether it's our work, or if we you know, follow a church, we might go there sometimes. We're part of a neighborhood. We live in a certain state and town. And all of those things from the built environment that I talked about to the kinds of policies or norms that guide this place and your way of living in this place affect you. So even here on our campus, you know, we were lucky enough to kind of be able to walk around a lot and have some nice trees outside our window. And there are things that we could think of that affect us just by being here, positively or negatively. So the place is where we spend our time. And then as we go out to the next level, it's kind of bigger level policy. And this one can be thought of as either macro level kind of policies that include everything from our national policy could be international context. It also includes things like culture and the things that anthropologists look at from a large human dimensions perspective that are really macro level drivers of the human experience. Economics mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. um, political and economic systems, 
all of those climate systems. So these are just the big, big world around us. And so what I say is imagine these layers of the onion and those different layers of influence kind of trickle down and affect the people at the core. And that's how we think about health as being this multi-level concept influenced by all of these other things. So that's, that's a, it. That's a neat model. Um, so how did you, so I've got a couple of examples of your, uh, of papers. So I thought we'd run through them. Uh, and maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of the methods you used sure. as well as kind of the problem that you were trying to assess. Yep. And, you know, from that PhD kind of perspective, like why the method <laughs> sure. and why, you know, how did the question influence the method or maybe the, the other way around, yeah. which I think is sometimes true. Mm -hmm. So the first one I want to run, uh, talk about was one we mentioned, which I think grows out of your, um, your dissertation work, yeah. which was urban containment policies and physical activity, a time series analysis of metropolitan areas 1990 to 2002. That's a good academic title. Right. <laughs> that was a very academic one. <laughs> so what does that all mean? What yeah. were you looking at? So what I was looking at, and it was really back when I was trying to think about how to take a metric from the urban planning world, so what people were exposed to in terms of their urban environment, translate that into something measurable, and then look at a health outcome longitudinally on the other end. Okay. So I was still at the point where you know, the research was even just like, can we look at things this way? Are there metrics that we can develop that even allow us to analyze these relationships? So part of it was looking at, from an urban planning perspective, the, the way that it's been thought about now and talked about a lot in the media is the concept of urban sprawl. So at the time, there had been some studies done before that showed that cities that were growing in a kind of what we would consider a sprawling way, which means just exponential growth, not much attention to where land use change was planned and in what ways, transportation systems sometimes not supporting the human structures that were exploding on the periphery of the city. Yeah. And there's various definitions that from an urban planning perspective define sprawl in a, in a more academic way. But there are some things that you can look at as criteria. And then there's some policies that from the time that I was doing the research, different uh, cities and sometimes states were putting into place to try to constrain sprawl <laughs> because there was a theory that it was costing us a lot of money because people were not then able to get to things efficiently and the growing research about it might be bad for health. It might be bad for air pollution, bad for behavior, potentially contributing to obesity. So these were things that people were beginning to link to sprawl. So my research was really taking this more policy lens and looking at places where different policies at either uh, city scale, so large cities because rural places weren't really doing this at the time, or state level policies and sometimes both, that set some boundaries on how growth occurred. So they would do this through creating financial incentives and saying that, you know, for example, we are going to give incentives for building new housing complexes inside the city boundary. But if you want to go and build one out in this rural area, you're either going to be penalized or we're certainly not giving you an incentive to build a housing complex where we want to preserve the forest, for mm -hmm. example. Okay. So there's different ways. And then the same with transportation. If we're building new transportation systems, they're going to serve a certain inner core, either through rail or through different ways of configuring highways. But the city is not going to pay for building new roads out to these burgeoning oh, settlements okay. that might just pop up in the more rural parts of the world. So there are different approaches to doing that. It's not really a, a purely black and white kind of thing. 
but there had been some that are more rigid where it's really almost mandated that you cannot, <laughs> you cannot build in the rural area. And then there's some that are quite um, voluntary incentive based where it's more about providing economic incentives to build where they believe growth should occur and to not provide economic incentives where they do not want growth to occur. But all of this is meant to influence the shape and the size of the city itself. So that's the urban containment. That's the urban containment. Of the yeah, the urban containment. And luckily for me, there had been some work done at Virginia Tech before that really laid more of a scholarly foundation for classifying types of containment. So again, when I think of the variety of approaches that can be used, what I did was use a political science lens that had already been developed by these other researchers that essentially allowed me to say there's very strong approaches, the mandated ones. There's some medium strong ones that can include incentives and some weak policies. And then there's basically nothing. It was kind of like a three-tiered system. Okay. And what that means, though, epidemiologically, is we now set up a model that has three levels of exposure, right? So this was sort of the back and forth. It's like, well, how do we classify? Is there any grounding for classifying things this way? And then I could take it back to what I know from epidemiology and say, well, essentially, then, I have an exposure that has three categories, none medium, or a really strong policy environment for these urban containment initiatives. And then I can look at whether obesity and physical activity trends over time have changed differently according to the none, the medium, or the strong. And that's, that's essentially all I did. So that's the time series. <laughs> yeah, piece. that's the time series. So you could look at both when the policy was enacted and you could look at the trajectory, just like you would do in economics, the kind of like a difference in difference, the trajectory before they're kind of on this trend. And then maybe they pass the policy, whether it's strong, weak, or if they did nothing, did they then start having more physical activity occurring? Did they have more prevalence of obesity or less, or was it basically the same? So you could, you look at the trends in these outcomes, which mine were obesity and physical activity and correlate them over time with the different levels of policy and when the policy was adopted. So what did you find? So I found that for the strongest ones, there was a noticeable change over time where those places, which were relatively few is the downside, had adopted a really strong policy environment to constrain growth, um, that there was more walking and more physical activity over time at a population level and less obesity but there really was not much difference between the none and the moderate. Mm. <laughs> or okay. not a statistically significant difference. And part of that too, when you really got into it, was what the state level environment was doing to incentivize the municipal environment. So when you had a state government that was really providing a lot of policy guidance for cities to be engaged in urban containment, and then you had city leaders who were willing to enact these policies that interaction, that synergy created a real difference. When you might have had either a weak state government and then a moderate level of change at the city level, I guess the planets didn't align well enough for it to really create a meaningful level of change in the health side. Interesting. Yeah. So another example is um, uh, of, of your research was aligning climate change, adaptation, planning, and adaptive governance, lessons from Exeter, New Hampshire. So yeah. Exeter, New Hampshire is just down the street from us. I know. And since that time, I've actually expanded that work with my, my colleague, Paul Kirshen, who's a wonderful engineer now at UMass Boston. We've looked at Hampton, Seabrook, 
and Hampton Falls and Exeter. So it kind of grew from, we've now got a few more communities in the mix. But really, it kind of follows from the work that I was doing then, where communities, city governments in this case, became interested in thinking about the human and economic costs of changing environments. Some of that is climate driven. So flooding is the one we're dealing with most of all on the seacoast of New right. Hampshire. But increasingly there's heat stress, there's stress to people, stress to buildings that are occurring with increasing temperatures. And all of this now is less a question of, you know, is climate change real, but more we know it's happening and how can cities adapt. So these initiatives are largely led not by academics, but by city governments, um, in this case, boards of selectmen saying, we need some kind of plan. We need to think about this. It's gonna cost us money and potentially hurt people. <laughs> so what are we gonna do? And so a lot of these initiatives are the planning process before I was talking about urban containment and policies about land use and transportation. Now we're having a whole new era of planning around climate adaptation, which can include land use and transportation and emergency response and a lot of other things. But together, they're supposed to think not just about conditions now, but what are some of the changes like flooding, like more frequent storms, more frequent winter issues with ice and power outages that are really requiring us to think differently. Yeah. So it's very much coming from, again, the planning lens with this new climate evolution aspect added onto it. And what I love is here working as a very interdisciplinary team. So the PI was Paul Kirshen, who's a civil engineer. Um, I worked with some wildlife biologists that were looking at how, in the Hampton case, the dune system, which is the natural barrier to storm, storm surge, is changing over time as we build differently and conserve or don't conserve the land there. And then people building houses, they can choose to build them in a flood resistant way or not. Lower income people often don't have the option of choosing their housing or choosing how to make their housing flood resistant. So all of these social issues, again, bringing social justice issues into it, how are lower income people affected differently or how are older people mm. affected differently than your average person, which is enough to think about. Um, but all of those questions kind of being thrown into the mix and driven by the community saying, when we make this plan, which is an ongoing several years process, can your research help us to understand the social justice issues, the public health issues? What are our impacts to infrastructure like roads and bridges going to be? What is the impact to the ecology, to the landscape going to be? And what I love about working in New Hampshire is the partners I've had on the community side are the ones asking the questions and challenging the researchers to say, we don't want a separate report about public health and about economics over here. We want you to put it together so that when we make these decisions, we can do it in an integrated way. And that's a, a very real and important challenge, and it breaks down those silos. So it forces us to work from an interdisciplinary lens. So the um, I, I wanted to highlight this adaptive governance mm -hmm. uh, concept. What, yeah. what can you talk a little bit about that? Because I yeah. thought that was really interesting. So adaptive governance is a big. Um, it's actually a pretty popular term now in what we call complex systems research. A lot of that is about climate change issues, but also about cities and places that are trying to respond to either uh, changes in the physical environment or large-scale social change. So at its heart, it's about, we know things are changing, how are we going to adapt? 
and how are we going to use our political and institutional systems to hopefully adapt in a smarter, more resilient way. So that takes me to the core of kind of resilience research, which is probably what I would, if I had to name one thing that unites my research now, it's the idea of resilience. But I think it's using the policy and institutional levers, which can mean everything from small town government mm -hmm. to large scale you know, okay. decisions at the global level to decide, well, you know, people are going to be affected by these things. And as we think about how we can respond so that, A, if, if a disaster happens, you have to have an emergency plan, but taking it right back to the primary secondary prevention, what are some things that we can build into our planning process now so that we might be able to prevent some severe damage or injuries to people either from flooding? If we know flooding is gonna happen in this zone, over and over again, maybe eventually we're not allowing people to build there anymore. That would be, you know, kind of a hard, a hard one to deal with, right? Because coastal real estate is so expensive, and people want to live there. Right. But those are the kinds of decisions that, from an adaptive government frame, governance framework, you start to ask, and you look at the whole system. You look at the ecological, the economic, the human side. You put all of those things into the mix. And the other key part of it is it usually involves academic and political and people, citizen participation. So it's meant to create some kind of a forum where the way research is done allows all of those viewpoints to come together, either through you know listening sessions or if it's formally part of a planning process that's supposed to happen anyway, and you just inject it into there. But it's meant to bring not just academic knowledge, but local knowledge. Right. And that can include, you know, the people of Exeter, or there's been fascinating work done out in Alaska where Inuit people are participating in adaptive governance because their lives are changing. Yeah. And people living in on different Native American communities. So it's it's a question that it's it's both who you bring into the process and what lens they can create to thinking about adaptation and who's ad adapting and who's enabled. <laughs> I mean, that, that um, when I read this, it really resonated with my own studies of economics uh, because I'm my my influences were uh, the Austrian school Hayek and uh, Israel Kirzner, for example, who really look a lot at the importance of local knowledge. So yeah, it really and that's a hallmark of adaptive gov governance. Right, yeah. and just the idea, like I was reading about your conversations and you know talking to the local fire chief who actually knows where the flooding had right, happened, right, and, and, right, and you know, and then who lives there, and yeah, you know, and um, whereas you know maybe looking at a. I don't know, looking at maps or, or satellite imagery, you're not going to get the full exactly. story, right? Exactly, so We yes. as academics would have that kind of knowledge, mm -hmm. but then you have the actual community knowledge. And right, and, and together more. making meaning of that in order, ultimately it's the community's decision of what they want to do yeah. and what they want to invest in. And just bringing as many perspectives to, to the table that can inform that process. So you did a case study in this mm -hmm. case. So the first paper we talked about uh, was a, a time series analysis. That's really a statistical. It's, it was kind of mostly data driven. Tool. In that case, I unlike there was a cross sectional part where I really talked to people, but that one, the okay. national level, was purely you're right, getting data, stringing it together, and doing statistical stuff to it. So the one we're talking about here with with uh, the, the adaptive governance was. A, a, what's called a case study. So yeah. what's the difference there? Well, so both in approach and in the way the research is presented. So for the, the case study, I was spending a lot of time in Exeter, you know, meeting with the select board. The, the town planner at the time was very involved, was a collaborator on the research. So it wasn't me sitting in my office. It was really taking the time to meet with people from the community, 
hearing about their local knowledge, as you mentioned, which is so important, and then documenting all of that in relation to what we were finding from the scientific models, which was the more analytic part. I think that's just a, a really cool approach. I mean, it's it's, and that's a very different approach than the the quantitative yeah. study you'd done before. So that leads us to a, a third example of of the kind of research you do, and that was um, a paper that I actually worked with you on uh, through the lens of a camera, exploring the meaning of competitive sport participation among youth athletes with disability. So this used a really cool research method called PhotoVoice. Talk, tell us a little bit about what PhotoVoice is and why did you choose to use that research method for this problem? Okay, so PhotoVoice comes from a tradition known as participatory action research, which is really where the subjects of the research are considered co-collaborators. So they're not considered lab rats or people that you're kind of studying objectively, but more that these people, whether in this case they were kids with disabilities or really anyone who you think has a unique perspective, and you're allowing them to tell their story in a manner that really resonates with them. And so usually you just prompt people sort of like we're doing in this podcast through a structure of questions that allows them to, in this case, we're using photography along with their story, but tell me why something is important to you, show me why you care about an issue. Often in this case, it was focused around youth with disabilities being able to participate in sports. So we were using photography and narrative to allow kids to show us what their world looks like and both what sport means to them, what it's like to be on a competitive sports team. And we explored questions of identity but really trying to not prescribe a whole lot in terms of what the interview process looked like, but using the technique of photo voice, which gives cameras to people and then allows them to take a series of photographs that then anchor the kind of meaning-making discussion to say, well, why did you take this photo? What does it tell us about the meaning of sports participation for you, and we had some questions about um, connecting that back to community strengths and access questions. So you, you literally gave the kids cameras yes. and said, go take pictures related around a theme, the, usually. Uh, this theme of, of sport participation. Yes. And then they came back with a bunch of photos, mm -hmm. and you sat down with them and went through the photos. That's right. And talked. Yeah, it's almost like a focus group with photographs anchoring the discussion. So the nice thing about that, too, is it's all of the kids collectively got to look at each other's photographs. So there's part of it that's kind of one-on-one -on -one where you're hearing from the person who took the photo, why was it meaningful, etc. But then you're also showing that photograph to the other people in the group who are other youth participants as well as the other researchers. And so we're all kind of hearing that story collectively. And sometimes the new insights come from that where other people might ask a question or say, oh, you know, I had a photo that also touched upon that idea or that theme, that strength, that need, whatever the case might be. So using it as both an individual narrative and a group narrative can evolve from that. It was really neat for me to participate in that. And, and, um, and I hadn't been aware of that technique. <laughs> yeah. Why was that technique appropriate for this particular 
question and, and, and population. Yeah, so you'll probably remember from being part of that process yourself that very much the, the spirit of Northeast Passage, which was part of our, our collaboration team, is empowering youth. So allowing youth to participate in empowering activities, which can include sport or a variety of other ways that Northeast Passage approaches that. But so in my mind, we wanted a research process that is, if anything, facilitating empowerment. So Photo Voice comes from that tradition, which is a tradition started by Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator who believed very much that everybody has something to teach us and that if we can structure a process of research around storytelling, or now we have cameras, we have other modes like GIS and video that can allow voice to come out in different ways, that we really just can guide participants in telling us what they see, what they experience in their own words. And then using their own words with as little adulteration from the research team as possible, to be the centerpiece of the research. So they become the producers of knowledge or the co-producers of knowledge. They have some decision-making power in how the research is presented because it's their own photos, their own captions. And I think in the case of that study, we also asked both parents and children, where would you like this research to be viewed? And they chose other competitive um, sports tournaments where other athletes would come and that would be where the research was showcased, not just in a journal, not just in the places that we would like to tell the story, but where would they like to tell the story? So there are points at which the participants, and in this case it had to be both parents and children because many of them were under 18, have some control over how the questions are being asked, what are the methods through which you want to tell your story, and then where is the story shared or how is the story shared. And that whole process is meant to, if anything, give people more sense of control and more sense of empowerment over the story that they're choosing to share. So how does your socio-ecological model um, come, uh, how, did that, how did that influence the way you looked at the data? Yeah, so I think it was, Part, it was partly how we looked at the data, but also the approach that we took, which is this participatory action research approach. I think all of us collectively agreed that that was a good fit for this question because it was very much focused on relationships, that interpersonal part of the model, and also on empowerment from an individual part. You and I talked a little bit about agency mm -hmm. and self-empowerment. So kind of touching on the empowerment lens as it percolates, in this case, up through the socio-ecological layers. We can look at individual change, relationship changes, and then we kind of got to the place in the research where we were talking about social change and whether that aligned in some cases or didn't align with the kinds of things that the kids wanted to do in order to feel that they were living an empowered life. And, you know, they're just taking it from a sports lens, but we looked at the kinds of access they had to venues to participate in sports, the kinds of things that we do as a society that maybe facilitate a perception of difference or of bringing people of various ability levels together where there's less stigma around disability. So it allowed us to enter into those conversations that touch on multiple layers of that onion again. And I think when we wrote together, we wrote the discussion of that paper, we used the social ecological model again to think about what are some of the challenges of making change, what are some of the ways in which the youth's own perspective informed our perceptions, 
of empowerment, and that became a vehicle for organizing and thinking through the different levels of resilience again. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, it was really striking being part of this study. Uh, I, I still think about, like, the, there was one young, young girl that uh, participated that took a picture at school, and it was a picture in the distance you could see playground. I know exactly. And she was taking it through, and then there was a gate, mm-hmm. and a fence with a gate. And she said, this is the playground uh, at my school, but I never play there because I can't get my wheelchair through the gate. Yes. And what a striking, like, sort of talking about your socio-ecological mm-hmm. model and barriers the, right. that are in place. And it was really, uh, for me, that was one of those striking, like, built environment kind of exactly. uh, uh, things. It just, but it's the built environment coming through her voice and her own observation that we might not have never seen the gate that way. Right, I wouldn't because I could just walk through it. Yeah, and yeah. There, there was a second photo that I think the same participant took, which was in the winter, and it had a snowbank. So not only was there the gate issue, there was, I'm sure, an unintentional pileup of the snowplow dumping the snow across the only wheelchair-accessible entrance to the playground. And she had another picture where it was the snowbank adding another layer of barrier just because nobody intended that, but they just weren't thinking from her perspective. And, you know, just showing us that sometimes these thoughts can make a person who is in a wheelchair, in her case, unable to participate in certain things just because we're, we're not allowing ourselves to think about it through her eyes. So we talked about three different examples of your your research. Mm-hmm. How do and and uh, we were talking earlier about kind of how do your you know your perspective your 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 thinking on the socio ecological model framework as well as your methods how do they how does how do they suggest studies to you how do they because like uh, the methods on the one hand ha- provide you tools yeah. and and so then you're like well what could i do with these tools mm-hmm. and then on the other hand you have a framework that kind of suggests a set of problems maybe to look at how does yeah. that interact for you so usually well it often interacts where the question will bubble up somehow from the community or from people like northeast passage who are very connected to people in a particular community or a particular situation. So a lot of my research is working with people who I consider to have a unique perspective to share, whether that's kids or older adults or people who've been through a certain situation. And that kind of touches upon the idea of building community resilience by making sure that everyone can have access to important tools of of self-empowerment or of health promotion. But I think it suggests to me that usually the question is at least somewhat informed by what people need or what I hear people, sometimes it's a small group, sometimes it's a whole city like Exeter saying, we have an issue that we're kind of bringing to the table and we are willing to collaborate with either just one researcher or a group of researchers about this issue and then opening into a dialogue about, well, what approach should we take? And that's where I dig into the toolbox, but usually even before methods, it's about Again, is it really an idea where we want an empowerment-oriented method? Because with these youth, that was such an important piece. Or maybe with the Exeter part, we had participatory action research elements, but it also had a lot of traditional kind of technical engineering research elements because for them, a lot of it was using very technical tools, so they felt they could make decisions about where they needed to build things or change things structurally. So I think it's then deciding with the partners, which can include community members, researchers, what tools we bring to the table, 
what approach is, is the best one. And it's usually not just me, it's a collective decision about then nailing down, okay, let's agree on this approach and we think these sets of methodological tools will allow us to inform the question. And usually it's with the eye again of it going back to some community that is to either make sense of it or make some decisions about it or bring a new perspective to the, to the table. So that's sort of the process I go through. So let me, uh, let me pose you uh, the question that uh, our, our dean posed to me a while okay. back. And that was, if you had to summarize your research agenda, meaning the things you do mm -hmm. in one sentence, what would it, what would it be? Socioecological resilience. Okay. And that's kind of an ap academic way. You know, there's a whole literature now about that. But it takes the idea of the onion, which we started with, and it takes that into a little more of what we now call a complex systems viewpoint where we know that between all the layers, there's little circles of what we call feedback loops. So there's a feedback loop between the policy level influencing what the individual could do. There's feedbacks between what communities are doing, maybe bubbling back up through a democratic process to change policy at larger levels. So there's all of these interactions really between the levels of the onion. And so when we're really looking at a, a complex system, we're taking those feedbacks into account, and that can change over time and space and cause new things to emerge, either for individuals or for societies. So most of my work is touching on at least a piece of that, maybe not all of it together at the same time, but it's looking at kind of the emergence of resilience and sometimes how we can play a role in that through our research process or through things we learn through traditional research that then can build a conversation around resilience and a complex systems approach to that. To close, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about kind of uh, careers in public health and, and, uh, and someone who's maybe listening to this and saying, wow, this all sounds great. Yeah. Um, what kind of oppor opportunities are there out there, maybe, maybe as an academic or, or maybe as a practitioner of some sort, what kind of training should people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, be pursuing to follow those roads? So I think at the undergraduate level, actually, a lot of different majors could ultimately take you down a public health path. As you see with me, I started in biology. I have friends who started in the humanities, who started in engineering. And I think most of it ultimately comes back to at what point in your life you find yourself attracted to solving community health issues or addressing them or being part of the way um, we work through community health issues. And that could come from a more medically colored uh, lens, a clinical lens, or even from, like I said, in engineering, those folks who work on the way things are built and how those affect our, our societal health. So I think at some point people who find themselves excited about those questions or come from an experience where they're either part of a community that's affected or they witness things that are affecting communities and they wanna be part of the solution, that's usually, I think, whether you end up in practice or in research, what draws people to public health. And often there's a, a strong equity component there too, where most people who gravitate toward public health are interested in reducing the disparities that we see in terms of the health, not only within our country, but internationally too. So those kind of dual things, if those things matter, if those things are part of what get people excited about going to work every day, then I think your first path after, really at the undergrad level, as long as you get a good undergraduate education, I think you could go on to be a good public health researcher or practitioner. At some point, you'll want to decide probably to go to graduate school. 
if you want to make public health a primary part of your work, either to get a master's degree, a master of public health, or you can do probably an MHA and get similar training. And I think at that point, you know, many people are fully satisfied and would, would stop and find a good work setting. If people really want to push it further, like my own story where there's an unanswered question or you feel you need to add to your professional development, either through analytics or through some other skill that you feel, mm, if I had the skill, I could take my career to another level, then maybe there's some level of doctoral training or just growing if you're in industry, often there are career paths that will support your professional growth. But I think it's really all just starting with that excitement about community health. And I will say too that there are people who don't call themselves public health practitioners, like my colleagues who are engineers by training, but their lens is so focused on public health and that collective problem solving that most of the interdisciplinary work that we're doing ultimately is public health work at the same time that it's civil engineering work. So another thing that I love about teaching is you know, I work with students who may never go on to get that MPH or, you know, will end up being engineers or maybe people who work in a, a business school setting, but they understand the issues of how the layers of the onion work. And they bring the public health lens through their training, sometimes very much just by being an engineer or leading a nonprofit or being the manager of a hospital to the work that they do because they understand the philosophy of public health and the approach of public health. So there's that way of working too. And so I always say sort of building this army of public health practitioners, some of them wear the public health coat to work and others of them wear a different coat, but they're still working on public health issues. If people want to find out more about your research uh, or maybe reach out to you, how would they go about finding you? So they can just actually Google ITUR, A-Y-T-U-R, C-H-H-S, U-N-H, and that will take you to my U-N-H faculty homepage. And there are a lot of links there about the different work that I do, a little more kind of biographical information, and some ways to tap into publications if people want to access them. Thank you so much for your time Sure. Today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.